This is the Young Professionals Podcast, proudly brought to you by Adapt Careers, where we speak with young professionals to understand what they do in their roles day to day, how they got there and what they've learned along the way. My name is Luke Marriott. And I am Nicholas Sargent, better known as Sarge. And we are your co-hosts. Sarge, what do our listeners need to do? To stay up to date and support what we're doing, please subscribe, like the episode and leave a comment on any of our social channels. We can't wait to hear from you. Hi guys, Luke and Sarge here and welcome back to another episode of the Young Professionals Podcast. Today we are speaking with Liz Pert. Liz is an audiologist working in a diagnostics role at the Ionia Hospital. Liz completed a four-year Bachelor of Speech and Language Pathology at Canterbury University in New Zealand. Liz then pivoted away from this and enrolled in a two-year Master of Audiology at Melbourne University. Liz completed an internship in a rehabilitation audiology role in regional Victoria before moving back to the city for a diagnostics role in a hospital. Liz now spends her days testing patients' hearing and balance, and these results are used by doctors to help diagnose and treat their patients. Less than two years of working experience under Liz's belt, she's the most junior on her team and is learning a lot every day. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, awesome to have you on. So you're a audiologist at the Royal Victorian Ionia Hospital, which does a lot of fantastic things for a great many people. Uh, <laughs> what, is, what does an audiologist do? Um, so audiology or like audiologists, we kind of work with hearing and balance. Um, so it's a bit like how optometry is for eyes or podiatry is for feet. Audiology is all hearing and balance. Um, so a lot of people are aware that they kind of have, you have a hearing system, um, or hearing anatomy, um, but right next to that, you also have, um, an anatomy that's responsible for your balance. So boards will, we spend a lot of time testing those systems, um, but some ORs will also uh, be doing more the side of trying to help people with their hearing. So they'll be fitting hearing aids and that kind of thing. Um, and there's a lot like there's different settings. You can be in a hospital or in a private clinic. Um, some people work just for children. Some are just with adults. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, it sounds like there's a little bit to be across. Um, like when you, you say we've got like our hearing system and our, our balance system, could you uh, maybe break those down for our listeners, please? Yeah. So your hearing system, obviously you have the bit outside that you can see. Um, you've got your ear canal, your eardrum, um, and then a little bit further in you have your actual organ of hearing, which is your cochlea. Um, and then connected to that are nerves that go up to your brain. Um, but right by your cochlea, you have your vestibular system and that's your balance system. Um, yeah. What, what sorts of tests do you do, um, both for balance and for the actual hearing as well? Yeah. So hearing tests, people are pretty familiar with those. They, um, we take people into a booth and we sit them down, we give them a button and they need to press the button every time they hear a beep. Um, those tests are only about 30 minutes long and you can get an idea of, you want to find out how, how severe someone's hearing loss is, but you can get an idea about where the hearing loss is in the system as well. Um, so those are hearing tests. Balance tests are—they <laughs> usually take a bit longer. They can be an hour and a half to three hours long, um, and 
they're very, they're, they're just not at all what you'd expect them to be. So I can give you an example of one if you'd like. Please. Um, we do one test called caloric testing and we lie people down in a chair and we actually blow hot or cold air into their ears. Um, and what it does is you, you have fluid in your inner ear and when you change the temperature, the fluid moves and we're kind of mimicking a head turn. And then we have goggles over their eyes and we record their eye movements. And that actually lets us know how well that system is functioning. Um, and it makes a whole lot of sense for us, but you can imagine as a patient, you're lying in a dark room, um, you've got goggles over your eyes and you're having air blown into your ears and you kind of feel like you're spinning. Um, yes. Yeah, so we also put people, there's another one called rotational chair and we put people in a chair and we actually kind of spin the chair around at varying kind of, um, velocities. And that also gives us information about your balance system and how well it's functioning. I think I used to do that one at primary school myself. <laughs> yeah. Liz, so you mentioned that you're working at the hospital and that like kind of podiatrists or physios, there can be a few different settings for audiologists that they would work in. Are you, is your work at the hospital kind of retrospect or not retrospective, but um, reactive that doctors say, I think there might be something wrong with this patient's balance or hearing, send them to an audiologist and then you do the test or does it work another way? Yeah. So um, the work that we do, it's it's all diagnostic. So it's all testing. I don't do anything with hearing aids or rehab. Um, and all of the patients that we see, they have referrals. So they need to have come through a doctor or an ear, nose and throat surgeon who wants these tests done. And also neurologists um, who, who want, want that testing done. Um, and that's how we see those people. So after we do all those tests, we write up a big report and then that goes back to the whoever doctor sent them in. Yeah. So we don't see at, at, at the hospital, we're not seeing people who have typically kind of age-related hearing loss. Um, we're kind of seeing the more unusual medical side of things, I guess. So is there, given that you're at the hospital, is there a particular kind of patient um, that you would be seeing? Like, is it someone that has been in a, you know, traumatic accident that has hurt their ears or is it a, a particular person with, uh, you know, types of diseases that you're trying to diagnose something that way or is it a broad mix of things? Yeah, so we could see um, some people come through emergency and they're the people have maybe put like a pen down their ear and ruptured their eardrum. Um, we see people who have had viral infections and their hearing has suddenly dropped away. Um, we see just kind of regular infections as well. Um, we see people who have little like benign um, tumours and stuff that are growing that need to be dealt with. Uh, so they're all people who, they're all people who hopefully through some sort of medical treatment um, can improve either medicine or, or surgery. Um, and then the, the, the other side, the balance side, they're, they're all people who have bad vertigo or dizziness or balance problems. 
I can imagine someone that comes into the hospital, you know, with a referral from the doctor saying, oh, go and get your balance or your hearing checked out. Like that sounds like a pretty worrying thing for me. Like if I had that referral, I'd be like, oh, what's going on? Like, is that a big part of your job? Um, like one, translating to people who are worried or in a stress state, uh, uh, quite a complicated test or whatever you're actually doing to them and then kind of guide, guiding them through that process? Yes, absolutely. Um, the technical side of things, people, I've been at the hospital for about uh, nine or 10 months now, and I feel pretty pretty comfortable with the, the actual doing the tests, but so much of the work is um, is making people feel comfortable. And like you said, like guiding them along the tests because people come in and they're super anxious a lot of the time, especially for the balance test, dizzy patients, they can be really anxious and worried. They're worried that you're going to make them feel sick. Um, and then sometimes we do balance tests on people who have profound hearing loss. So then you also have to be really comfortable communicating with those people or writing things down. Um, yeah. So it's not occasionally I'll have like a 20 year old who's actually pretty fit and healthy and you will just fly through the tests and it's so easy, but most of the time you're actually working with people who have a bunch of other um, like difficulties that they're facing. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of it is a lot of it's that communication with the patient. Is those soft skills, are, are they something that you, you did whilst you're at university and um, they train you to, to deal with these situations where it's hard to communicate or someone might be feeling really anxious? Yes. Yeah, they do. They, they have a big focus on it um, throughout the course. I think there's skills that can be improved, um, especially with practice. I think um, before I started working, I had quite a soft voice and could be a, like a bit shy and a bit nervous. Um, but with practice, you get over it pretty quickly. I do also think... And at high school, you can kind of tell if you're going to be that person um, who, yeah, I think you have to have some sort of a base for those skills that you can then grow on. Yeah. Oh, I, I just had to be um, quite hard to, oh, I imagine it'd be quite hard to, to deal with these people and learn to, to learn to deal with them, particularly if it wasn't like an innate thing. Yeah. If it's not, yeah, if you have, if you have a little 80 year old, and she's very frail and she's got, you know, really poor hearing um, and maybe poor eyesight as well. And she's dizzy and all these other things. Maybe a lot of our patients don't speak English as a first language and you still have to bring them in, get the best results that you can. And they still have like, they still have the same rights to understand their health and to be able to make informed health decisions. So you still need to be able to do all of that despite obstacles. Um, get, like in, your, in, t in terms of your day to day, like you, you roll into the hospital, are you seeing patients all day? Like it sounds like you have to um, write reports for, the, for doctors and, and the, the, the specialists that, that provide the referrals. What does a day in the life of an audiologist look like? Yeah, so it's a little bit different at the moment with COVID. <laughs> We're very quiet, but typically um, 
Yeah, typically you get in, you kind of see if you're on hearing tests or on a balance, balance appointments. Um, and it's usually a combination. Um, in the morning, you could be scheduled to see maybe six people and it's just hearing test after hearing test. Uh, those reports are very quick to write. Uh, the balance appointments, those reports take a little bit longer. But yeah, on a really busy day, you could see maybe 10 patients. And then just in the spare time, you're writing up your reports or getting uh, feedback from your colleagues or yeah, it is, it, when it was busy, it was really, really busy. Liz, uh, whenever I go to someone that's like a physio or whatever, then they write up their report. Who is that report for? And are you having to not learn a different language, but learn a different way of writing information depending on who that report is going to and who's going to be using that information to, to help the patient down the track? Yes. So the, the reports, sometimes we get referrals from GPs out in the community and a lot of GPs are not super familiar, especially with balance tests. So then we might be giving a whole lot more information and um, using maybe less jargon and um, then some reports will be going at ear, nose and throat surgeons and some of them are a lot more familiar. And so you kind of have to, you can be a bit more technical, I guess. Uh, yeah. So you are, you are writing it and, and writing it slightly different depending on who you're sending it to. Yeah. That seemed like a bit of a weird question, but I think it's, it, you can be, uh, it is applicable to heaps of different um, industries or, or roles, I think, and particularly in law, like we see it all the time. If you're writing for a really sophisticated client, you can be a bit more detailed. But if you're writing for a client that just wants a yes or no answer, then you write the same thing but in a different way. Um, and it's just interesting that, that that is in the health field as well, depending on the audience for whom you're writing. Um, let's take a bit of a left turn back to your, uh, I guess, education journey. Now, you are originally from New Zealand. Do you want to walk us through your undergraduate studies and maybe some decisions in high school that, that got you to where you are now and walk us through that journey? Yeah, I, uh, I only decided what I was going to do in my undergrad, I think, in the last month of high school. I knew that I really liked, liked biology, liked science, and that I was quite the kind of emotional wanting to help people type person. Um, so I really like the idea of medicine, but to be honest, I didn't have the grades to go and, and do medicine. So I looked at a couple allied health options, found out about speech therapy, which seemed to tick a lot of boxes. Uh, so I enrolled in a four year undergrad in, in speech pathology um, and when I got to the end of that fourth year, I just wasn't excited for work. And I also felt like I was very young to take on a patient load. I just, I wasn't ready. I didn't feel like I really knew what I was doing. Um, and I did think I wanted to do some more study and speech pathology and audiology have this relationship. Most universities, the departments are together. And actually in the US, you have to study both. So I kind of was aware of audiology. So I looked into that a little bit and it was another two years of study. It has all of the same, you know, helping people and, and that kind of thing and, and working with people. But like 
Audiology's got, I, I just really like the tests that we do with audiology. It's a lot of, um, there's kind of quite cool physics and maths behind the, the testing. Yeah, so I, I applied to do, also applied to come to Melbourne uh, and then I got into the Melbourne course. So I moved, moved over. Had you just stopped at the end of your speech pathology degree? What, what would that have looked like from a job perspective? Like I presume you wouldn't have been able to become an audiologist? No, I would have, I would have gone into speech therapy and been a speech, speech therapist. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't even get that far into looking for jobs. I think by fourth year, I already knew I wasn't excited. Walk us, like, I think that's probably a pretty common thing. Like people get to the end of a three or four or five, six year degree and go, uh, do I actually want to do this? Like walk us through that, uh, I guess, feeling. And then how did you go about making a decision to, to do something else? I think it didn't feel too difficult for me because I was still so young and I didn't take a gap year. So it didn't feel you know, and at, at that time as well, I didn't know what working life was like. I'd never had a salary. So the idea of living like a student for another two years didn't seem all that difficult. And if anything, now I, I kind of would encourage people to be okay with doing that. Um, because once you start working and you're earning money and I don't know if you have a family and things like that. It's then I think it's very difficult to go back and change directions. Yeah, cool. So you then elected to do, and correct me if I'm wrong, but your masters, um, and you went on to have a couple of internships or at least one um, that you did out in regional Victoria. Do you want to talk us through that process as well? Like you, you made a first big move to come to Australia, and I assume that was to the city to start off with, and then you went out to regional Victoria, um, which is a pretty big leap. Walk us through that experience and how you, how you found that. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that at all. I maybe hadn't done my research uh, well enough into the jobs kind of landscape with audiology, but most people have to move for their first year to a regional location. That's where a lot of the work is. Uh, so that really wasn't on the cards because I moved to Australia so that I could be in the city. Um, but it was okay because I was I was really I was really excited to start working and I was ready and it was I always knew that it was kind of going to be a really good getting my foot in the door um just to get that first year and get all of that experience. What, what was it like like going to going regional and would is that something that you would recommend um, students take the opportunity to do if they if they're given that. Yes, I think definitely, realistically, you might have to. <laughs> um, so you have to, you have to like, you have to go into it knowing like, yes, I might have to do some time out in the country. Um, and I think you can have a good attitude and make the most out of it. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes with rural living that's really nice. Uh, and the other thing is, if you get to go regional, because there isn't the same level of health services, and unfortunately there is kind of that inequality in health services, metro and, and regionally, you're going to be seeing probably a lot more complex patients and you're going to get to all clients and you're going to get to learn a whole lot. 
and be quite independent, which is a really nice thing to do early on. And while you're out in the um, regional placement, you were working in a rehabilitation in the rehab side, weren't you? Yes. Yeah. And like when, when you chose to come back to Melbourne or got the opportunity to come back to Melbourne, was it a deliberate decision to go more down the diagnostics path? Yeah, it was. So that, that was the other thing. Rehab was never really, wasn't really my, it wasn't the thing that I loved at uni. Uh, but, but also there, once again, there is only so, there's so few diagnostic jobs. So it was another, yeah, like I knew that I just needed to get some experience under my, under my belt and, and do the rehab work. And I still, I still learned a lot. And I know that when I, when I got my job at the, at the INEA, um, one of the people who interviewed me said that that was, that was part of it because maybe the actual technical, you know, they didn't need me to fit hearing aids, but the having a year of practice with people who have, um, hearing impairment was really valuable, like communication wise. And I imagine like knowing, um, where people are going in their, um, hearing journey, if you'll call it that, um, would also be extremely useful in the sense that I imagine the diagnostics then, um, results in the rehabilitation side of things. So now you would be able to, to see a patient and understand that, oh, this is the likely path, um, in, in a much better way that than someone who wouldn't have had that rehabilitation experience. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Cause sometimes you, you get to the end and if, if there's going to be no further, uh, surgery or medicine, that's going to be able to help people's hearing. The next thing is hearing aids. A lot of the doctors don't, um, cause that's not their focus. So they might not talk to the patients about that, but it's nice when they come for a hearing test that you can say, okay, you know, hearing aid probably would benefit you. This is why I think that's the case. And this is how you can find an audiologist out in the community to do that side of things. Liz, you mentioned it a couple of times. How big is the industry in Australia or even, even globally or in New Zealand? In Australia, I, I think there's like 3,000 odds. Uh, so it's very small. I'm not sure about New Zealand, but I know that there's only two courses in New Zealand and I think they only have about 30 or 40 people in their courses, I think. So it's it's very small. And I imagine that leads to a pretty competitive uh, graduate job landscape when you come out of university. Yes, yes, it is very competitive. Um Yes, it is. <laughs> so I, I, I'm taking that you're a very, very humble person because you've obviously got a job at one of the hospitals in Melbourne. I assume that there weren't too many jobs going for people in your cohort or even other cohorts coming through from university. Like, what do you think made you a good candidate um, to, to the hiring you know, team or committee or whoever actually hired you at the hospital? I think it wasn't so much... It wasn't so much the, they're not, they weren't so worried about grades and they weren't so worried about the technical side of things. They just, they especially, because those diagnostic teams, they can be quite small and they just really wanted someone who was going to um, like be a good, valuable part of the team um, and work well within a team. And the other thing is they were really big on wanting to find um, someone who was willing to learn. So 
it was a grade one position. Um, and there's so the way the hospital functions is very different. And sometimes, you know, people come out of their university degree and they're like, great, I've done a degree in this and I know everything and I'm ready to go. But they really just want people who are going to um, admit that they don't know everything and that they're very open and willing to take on feedback and learn. Um, yeah. So I think that was a big thing for them. It, it, that's a, I think a really important topic because you hear, you know, teachers at, uni- in, at university say, you know, stay curious or always be learning, always asking questions. Like in, in your perspective, what is a, what, what makes a person that is always really genuinely wanting to learn? Like what makes a curious person versus someone that says they're curious and isn't actually? <laughs> I guess like specifically with this role, I really try because each, each patient has a very, uh, each patient's situation is very different. It's like a little like kind of puzzle trying to put the pieces together. And when we write the reports, we don't necessarily have to know what their diagnosis is or what's going on. It can be quite easy to be like, well, these are the results and off to the doctor, you know, they'll, they'll figure it out. Um, but I think everyone on our team tries quite hard to look at those results and then go talk to the doctors and ask what they think or like the senior or she's super knowledgeable. So we'll go take it to her and talk through all of the results. And it's not because we necessarily have to do that work, but it's, it's good for ourselves to be able to do that. Yeah. Oh, I think that's an awesome attitude to have and um, holds, holds anyone in a really good spot in, in any industry. People always appreciate when, when you're interested and you're willing to ask questions and be curious. Liz, reflecting on your journey, um, what's maybe some things you would uh, change or something uh, that you would suggest that students think about that might not be at the forefront of their mind at the moment? I think especially for allied health students, there's actually a paper and people can look this up if they want to that just came out in Australia. I think they've been looking at it last year, but it's all about imposter syndrome and allied health students. Uh, and it's it's particularly bad in that cohort of students. And I listened and heard about this paper last year and it was super enlightening, but I think allied health students can be really harsh on themselves, um, especially during like exam period and things like that and starting your first jobs. Um, so... Yeah, if you can do a bit of research and read about that, because we're not always very good at critiquing ourselves accurately um, and kind of sometimes lacking a little bit of of confidence. Um, So I think, yeah, I think have a look into that and learn a little bit about that because that's still something, I'd say that's still something I'm like battling with even at the moment. Um, Yeah. I haven't read the paper, Liz, but I imagine it's pretty similar again across many industries. And my two cents on that is when I started a law firm um, as, as a grad, one thing that people said that has always stuck with me is like, we've hired you for your potential and we expect you to know nothing. And we know that you know nothing. And then that kind of helped to alleviate a little bit of that imposter syndrome, I think, because it, it took away the pressure of, oh, I need to get this right. I need to know everything now. And I need to be an expert from from the get-go. Whereas if 
Whereas in, if you, as a graduate, um, employee coming into one of those programs or your first job, if you can take the approach of I've done really well at uni or I've shown that I have a really good attitude, I'm curious and I have the potential to become a good fill in the blank role, then the pressure of needing to be that person at that particular time can, it goes away. And I thought that that really helped um, me at least and other people that heard that kind of speech say the same thing but yeah you're right it it is a massive problem and you can see that it really kind of stifles people in in the first year or two of their experience to to that luke how did you deal with it when you started at norton rose (laughs) um good question i haven't been on this side of the microphone before um but i think i got pretty stressed out with the first kind of couple of tasks that that i did and it took some more senior people to stand aside and say, Hey, just relax. Like we, as I said, like we don't expect you to know anything. We just expect you to try hard. And then when you take that approach to it and you know that you're going to stuff something up and you know, you're going you're to get something wrong, but you change the, um, the mental approach to expect that you're going to stuff something up, but only look after the stuff that you can really control. And that's how hard you try. Um, when that's all you expect of yourself, then that kind of, as I said, alleviates it. And do you find that's the same for you, Liz? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, yeah, I think it's just, it's a fine balance between it's a skill to be able to reflect, reflect on yourself and your actual own performance. And it's a balance between being overly confident and thinking, you know, everything, um, and then actually being just way too harsh on yourself and not believing in yourself. So that, that self-reflection skill is, it's a tricky one. And yeah, it's okay if you're not able to see to see it yourself to get feedback from other people. Do you think that's something that's come with maturity? Ooh, yes, possibly. I'm in a less stressful situation. I think if I had to go through exams again, those practical exams were awful. Um, so yes, possibly, but I still have a long way to go. <laughs> I am very humble. <laughs> Liz, to that, what do you think makes a good junior audiologist or to go a bit broader, what makes a good junior person in an allied health role? Yeah, I guess everything, like all of the things we were kind of just saying, um, like willing willingness to learn. Uh, if it's allied health, you're going to be working with people and people who aren't feeling very well. So you need to be, you need to naturally care and want to help people and have those, you know, be empathetic. Um, and communication, because same thing, you're working with people and people who aren't always in the best mind frame because they're stressed and they're unwell. That's why they're there. So you need to be able to communicate very clearly and get things across medical terms and stuff across in a way that is accessible for people to understand. I think that's awesome advice and a great place to leave it. So thank you for coming on the show this morning. It's been awesome to hear about what an audiologist does and and learn about your journey from New Zealand to Melbourne, Australia. So thank you very much, Liz. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you have a profession you would like to know more about, a question you would like us to ask, or a story you would like to tell, please reach out to us on the social channels at either the Young Professionals Podcast, TYPPAU, or our personal profiles. We'd love to hear from you.